0: you. Thanks for tuning into the Waiting List podcast. I'm Long Long.
1: I'm Daniel.
2: And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches.
1: So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. I think it's not a surprise that people that follow this podcast will know that I'm a big fan of Mavado I can't say I'm the most knowledgeable, mostly knowing some of their key vintage models and mostly because of their design. My first Movado, the calendar graph, was a piece I saw while strolling on Instagram. And while we're all common with the phrase, you can't fix ugly, you also can't deny beauty. And after seeing it, the hunt began. And what is becoming a common theme on this podcast, finding a high quality example was extremely difficult A few of my friends knew that I was looking for one, including Long Long here. And she actually Mm -hmm. saw one being sold on the Time Curator page. The truth is she wanted it too, but she knew how much I wanted it. And so she moved aside and after a poor negotiation, which was something on the lines of, shut the fuck up and take my money, a deal (laughs) was struck. And the watch was sent to Hong Kong where I picked it up. And for those listening to the podcast, you'll know that I'm quite enamored by the piece. But while I love the aesthetics of the piece and the quality and the discreteness of the brand, I actually don't know as much as much as I should do about the brand. Thankfully, we are joined today by Lewis, who runs the Movado Archives page on IG. So welcome to the show, Lewis.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Right, so uh, before we delve into the wonderful world of Movado, perhaps like just give you us a brief introduction of yourself like where you are, what you do, yeah, something like that.
2: Sure. Um, so my name's Lewis. I'm living right now in Long Island uh, for those international listeners listening. Long Island is a little island um, east of Manhattan. Um, more so suburbs, if you're thinking of the Nassau County, Suffolk County. Um, I am living here now with my wife, been living here all my life, Um, never really ventured out outside of the state. Um, Currently, I work as a supervisor for a care coordination organization supporting individuals who have a developmental disability. I support them with acquiring certain services, whether it's day program services, residential services, um, pursuing governmental services. So that is my profession. Um, I was doing that for some time and then the pandemic had occurred. Um, Like most people living in New York during that time, I was just really sitting on my hands at home. Um, Although I was labeled an essential worker where I was still obligated to work, it didn't require me to go into the office. So here I am, just trying to figure out what hobbies to really get myself into. And um, I was always into watches or cognizant of them. My father always stressed time, although he never really invested in a expensive piece himself, made me aware of how important it is to have a watch. But mind you, it's the year 2020 at this time where it's a little bit um, archaic to need or value a watch. I did understand that it was you perceive people a little bit different who are cognizant of their time. And you're aware of it when you see that they're wearing a timepiece. Um, in the early 2020s. I was really just looking into getting into watches just because um, again, I just found myself really being interested in the topic itself. There was more, a lot of, um, there was just a lot of information out there. I mean, besides Rolexes and the Holy Trinity that everyone knew, um, I was really wasn't interested in those pieces. I'm, not that I could afford them anyway. Um, I was looking into more vintage pieces at the time. American brands like Elgin, Bulavas, um, some vintage Hamilton watches. And eventually, I started learning more about vintage Movado watches. The early vintage Movado watches were not of the Movado watches of today that people know of. The, I think when people think of Movado watches now they are thinking about the museum design um the older vintage pieces just had a different design language which surprised me um i quickly started looking into the brand um and i wanted to look into the brand because it was a brand that resonated with me again i'm a new yorker and movado is a very much a new york brand especially the movado of today i won't say that for vintage movados but um it was a gateway for me and then um like many watch collectors you just go down the rabbit hole of finding out more information actually falling in love with the hobby
1: okay so (laughs) that's my uh, question one two three and four
0: done (laughs) okay can i come in then with a question because i knew that we were interviewing someone today that would have the answers to this but just if you google Movado a bunch of things come up. So first I was like, wait, hold on. There's Movada Group. They're listed. And then they now own a bunch of brands under them. And what I found shocking was, did you know that at one point they own Piaget? Like, so that blew my mind. And then I went, okay, so you had Piaget's like technology and expertise. And then you had such nice vintage wash designs. And then, then I was like, okay, hold on, let me take a look at what they're producing now. And I'm just confused. Like, what happened?
2: So you made a very astute observation. Um, I won't say that Piaget was necessarily owned. They had the distribution rights. So the Movado Group of today was acquired Mm -hmm. by the then North American Watch Company. Um, The North American Watch Company was the distributor for in north america of piaget watches um mm-hmm. so the ceo of the north american watch company is the current CEO. well was then the ceo of the movado um company which was um ephraim grinberg i'm mm-hmm. gonna confuse some of the names or butcher some of the names just by pronunciation mm-hmm. but the grinberg family essentially they already had the north american watch company When they bought Movado, they essentially changed their name from the North American Watch Company to Movado. But at that time, they were already the fifth owner of the Movado name. Movado has gone through several transitionary periods, several different ownerships. um, And through those different ownerships, you saw saw different design languages being implemented in their timepieces. So um, I would agree in saying that a lot of the Piaget pieces do share a similar design language of Movado, And it was, it's not just apparent now, it was apparent back then. Um, if you ever look into the brand, you start realizing that there were several lawsuits going on between Piaget, Mavado, um, the designer of the museum, Dao, whose name is uh, Nathan Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Long Jean was thrown into the mix too, because of copyright, what he perceived of copyright infringement of his design, um, he believed that Piaget was infringing upon his museum design language. And if you looked at Piaget, you know, you can recognize that they share a lot of similarities, uh, the voided dial, um, as opposed to Movado, which has a dot Piaget, just says Piaget at the 12 o'clock position. Um, he himself felt that that was an infringement of the design that he had implemented. Um, the courts thought different. They felt that they, you could not, um, copyright a design language so now you, you see um, a huge influx of that voided dial design um so it's not the design language that movado has now is not necessarily exclusive to movado
0: okay i have a follow-up question so if you look at breitling breitling has changed hands yeah I just Sorry, want to say but, you
1: explained
2: yeah. that really well, Lewis. By the yeah,
0: way. I'm like, is he <laughs> reading? The really script? Well. <laughs> like yeah. it's so yeah. <laughs> um, breaking the fourth um, wall.
2: I do yeah. have notes here, so I'm not stammering as much.
0: Okay, but it's still very like easy to understand. Yes. Um so going back to my second question, so Brightling has changed hands, like I think three or four times through several funds. But then, you know, the design language has been very very consistent. So then I would understand that their customer base has continued to grow because people understand the design language. But then with Movado, you're saying that, okay, it's changed hands several times and every single time it's changed hands. The design has kind of evolved with a new management, right? So like. Are, like, are there actually people buying Movado or, or it's just surviving because there's like good financial backing, so it looks like it's doing well, but actually no one's buying the modern
2: ones? With regards, I think it's a different customer base who is into the newer Movados. I believe them to be great uh, entry-level pieces, but in terms of satiating the desires of the watch enthusiasts, the current company struggles to meet their needs. Um, I think, I mean, it's, when we talk about Movado now, we have to understand that it's nothing like the Movado of the Ditesheim family, which is the original original family who founded the brand. Um, It's nothing like the Zenith company who were to then take over Movado in the late 60s. And then maintain the Movado brand throughout the entire 70s during the Quartz crisis. Um, so, I do think that I do think that with Movado itself, you have to appreciate the understanding that you're looking at a different product. It really, um, it really is not anything of Movado of yesterday, despite that they claim to be. Mm. I mean, if you ever follow them on Instagram, they really try to retool their Instagram page and make it more make it resonate more with watch enthusiasts they recently tried to take down all their pictures and they posted more vintage pictures but me as a collector i look at it and i think of it as so phony um (laughs) they they share they share no history with them um their history is not of that so when a watch enthusiast looks at the current offering of modern pieces and they ask themselves well why can't Movado produce you know vintage pieces like they did in the past. The answer is that really they never did. The mm-hmm. current company never did produce those vintage pieces, so they don't they don't have an appreciation and understanding of that design language or the desire to be innovative.
1: Mm. Okay. Mm. So um, you've basically already alluded to the fact that uh, Movado went through different phases and when i was on the call with you previously you mentioned that um the design is kind of like um also kind of linked with those different stages of the company's like changing hands so i was wondering if you could actually just educate me on the initial what what you see as the initial period or the different periods and then um What would you classify as like the designs or that go with that period? What are the best designs? Um, What were they trying to achieve? Because I remember when I was talking to you about um, my own pieces, you said, oh, that's from this time period. And I was like, I never even thought about that. So, yeah, it'd be great if you could just roughly do that. And I could just sit and listen.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So when I think about the Movado brand itself, although it's had Five different entities that have owned it, I really think of it as four different periods of the brand itself. So the first period, which is really the most um sought out after in terms of, you know, collectors looking after for their timepieces, um, was during the shine ownership of the brand. Um, that's roughly the first owners. Um, the Movado, I mean, the watch company was named after themselves. Um, but they changed the name in the ni- early 1900s to Mavado. So from then to 1968, that is the Didacheim family owning Mavado. The early um, 30s, or even before then, you can see a lot of tonneau pieces, a lot of cushion cases, um, really, really elegant pieces. Uh, they look more dressier. I mean, if we were to look back on it, um, I think we would... And I say we, being both men and women, would feel a little bit more comfortable wearing these pieces. But I would imagine that these pieces were more geared towards women, um, just because of case shapes how elegant they were. Um, that is the Dita family, and they took pride in their pieces. Um, they were perceived themselves as being leaders in innovation when it came to their pieces as well. We talked about during the pre-interview, the poly plan, which is that movement that they created, which was on three different planes that mm-hmm. allowed the case to meet the, the risk yeah. shape. Um, but even outside of that, they had the calendar, um, Mavados, which were, again, uh, we have to be appreciative of the time, um, revolution, revolutionary at its time. Um, then they had the M90, M95 chronograph in the late uh, 30s. I want to say 38 was when the M90 came out, which is their two register chronograph. And that chronograph, um, despite that there were chronograph movements, they were not manufacturer movements. They were Jewel movements. They were Lamania movements. So you saw that Rolex, Patek, although they might have had chronographs, they were not investing in in-house movements at this time, and they were still outsourcing their own chronograph movements. Um, Movado had their own movement, and it was really their staple for the first 30 years um, of that piece and t- until it was replaced by the El Primero. When the El Primero came, um, you can now say that they're in their second phase of that brand's history um, under the Movado-Zenith-Mandia group, which is the, essentially the second ownership. They don't really talk about it as if, as if it's a second ownership, but when you read the Movado history book and you were to accept its presuppositions, um, you learn that as a company, if you start losing seats on a board member, you know, as, as board members that control a company, if you start losing seats upon that board, you're really not controlling that company. So Zenith was really calling the shots during that merger. And at that point, Movado has really taken a step down to Zenith. Um, Before you, Um, During the Didisheim family, you can say that Zenith and Movado, they're really at par, but after that merger, you can clearly see that Zenith was held in higher regards than Movado. And it translated to their pieces, where now you look at those pieces, and instead of thinking that they are their own unique pieces, they more so share a design language with Zenith, or what people would traditionally think of Zenith pieces or design languages. That merger was very short-lived. Um, This was during the quartz crisis. Uh, Zenith really only wanted to merge with Movado because of copyright reasons to sell their pieces in the United States. There was already a Zenith radio company operating out of Chicago. um, And to be able to sell their El Primero pieces, they needed Movado to introduce their pieces to the American market. But in 72, I want to say, the radio company bought out uh, the watch company and now having ownership of both Zenith watches and Mavado watches, Mavado just really became superfluous. And you can see that they really did not care too much about needing Mavado. Um At this time, they were really just throwing away all the. Mechanical movements, um, they didn't really think that they needed it in the world was evolving in that way where they thought that quartz was going to be the way of the future. Um, You quickly saw that Movado just started producing quartz pieces Um, before the museum dial was not such was not emphasized, although it's been around since the late 40s. It was not a majority of the Movado catalog. And then since the radio company has acquired it, you saw that it's more pronounced that design language. Um, The radio company had it for a little while. They sold it to a company called Dixie, which was really just a parts manufacturer that was slowly acquiring all the companies that were dying off from the quartz crisis. And then Dixie essentially sold the company to the current owners. Um, the North American watch company then um, had bought Movado, uh, re their name, they changed their name. I, I believe they perceived themselves as acquiring a name that is larger than them. Um, and that is the current design now so we're, we previously mentioned the museum design that is that is their bread and butter they have nothing else like if you were to go on their website it's 99 just museum dial watches um mm. and that's really the current design that they're following
1: okay so mm. wow you are a book of knowledge um <laughs> I would like to go back to the polyplan because I read up on this and you're right. It's kind of like got the Sintre kind of look, the Cartier Sintre look, but they made the movement in three planes to go with the curve of the actual watch, right? But then there's there's also like the watch called the curvy plan. So what's the difference between the polyplan and the curvy plan?
2: As technology just improved, I believe that they did not require such a large movement to, um, I mean the the actual poly plan. The movement itself is rather long. Like if you were to able to see it outside of the case, it's a long movement. So, but the pieces themselves were just simple time only pieces. Um, they may have had a small second hands, but I think that that became superfluous as time ensued. So I think that just naturally the movement itself became smaller, and it the desire to actually need a movement to go across three planes was. Um, not necessary. So I think they were able to just really acquire having the small second hands while still having a small base movement that did not require to be on three planes anymore.
1: So is so is a uh, curve plan the basic one is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, that's the basic one that does not have the movement oh, in three different planes.
1: Okay. So have you ever seen a poly plan?
2: I have. I have.
1: And was it in good condition?
2: Absolutely not. <laughs> the the poly plan there i mean these pieces we're talking about some of them are over 100 years old um yeah. they're not water resistant so if you wore your pieces more than likely i, I mean especially if you were going from a human place and not human place you'd often see that the crystals would fog up uh eventually it would lead to damage on the dials so i've never seen one that was not redialed or repainted. Um, the okay. cases themselves might be in good shape but that i've never seen an intact dial even a lot of the books and pictures that i've seen you have to be careful in assuming that that's how it looked because it's just really someone um again repainting the dials themselves
1: okay have, have you ever been able to put it on the wrist
2: i haven't i haven't been able to put it on I wonder the way it
1: wears like yeah
0: how
2: many, I've seen how many it on pieces the
0: were made?
2: How many pieces were made?
0: Yeah, because I'm just like googling this and I'm like, there are some on eBay. Like, and I mean, yeah, like you said, it's been retouched for sure. The dials like looks pretty new. The case is you can the case I would think it's still original. It still looks pretty good. But they seem to be like easy to buy.
2: Again, I think that they're easier to buy just because they're, I mean, the watch community is there. We're a bit snobbish. We would like Mm -hmm. to have our dials not repainted and everything. So I think they just become least desirable and thus, you know, they're just going to be sitting on eBay for some time in terms Mm -hmm. of quantity. It depends on the type of metal that was utilized to make them because they did, the standard was gold, but I do know that it was offered in white gold and platinum as well. The platinum being the rarer, um, Mm -hmm. I don't know in terms of quantity how many were produced of each one
0: okay Hmm. it's cool
1: okay and i'd like to ask um about the pieces that i have which you know they have quite a quite a nomenclature they've they've got like a astrograph calendar graph um triple calendar obviously yeah so yeah
2: please (laughs) There's several names for a lot of these pieces, and I think that's what makes it challenging to actually find, because if, you, especially if you're talking about international collectors, when they start labeling some of these pieces, they might be referring to their piece as a calendograph, spelling it with an F. Um, some people spell it P-H at the end. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. I think, honestly, there's just different generations of the celestiograph and astrograph. Um, Mavado had done a poor job of Maintaining the lineage of their names, um, like if we were to think of Rolex, for example, and uh, Oyster Perpetual, and OP, you know, that has gone a long way. You can tell, like when you're looking at an Oyster Perpetual, you can see like definitively when it was introduced and track it throughout the years. Movado mm-hmm. has not done a good job of really tracking the lineage of their watches, making sure that these names are... Um, I mean, some of these pieces kind of transcends names. It's not uncommon, to, especially during the later years when you start looking at some of these pieces that they're being referred to by multiple names. Um, you might look at a piece, and it's just, again, in their own catalog, they might just refer to it as a kingmatic, which might mean anything. Um, they labeled a lot of things with just a rotary automatic movement as a kingmatic. Um, so it's just, they did a poor job of just making sure that um, their lines didn't really transcend one another, that you're able as a, again, I don't think that they had in mind people would be collecting these pieces um, mm. so many years after the fact. So they probably just were not cognizant of making sure that these names did not bleed upon one another. I think they were just trying to throw anything to the wall and see what sticks. Uh, these names, they're not the sexiest of names. I mean, if you were to compare it to, some of the names that Rolex gave their pieces, you know, their the Movado names for some of these things are a little bit bulky, uh, doesn't quite slip off the tongue as easy.
1: Hmm. Okay. So, which what which pieces would you say in vintage Movado are the most collectible?
2: Collectible in terms of desirable, or yes. okay, yeah. or, or or
1: what other way? Like when you say. Is that wrong? Well,
2: when I think of collectible, I think of either what people desire in terms of want or what people are able to actually access. Um, so like when we talk about that poly plan, for example, that is one of the pieces that are desired, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily accessible for people to get at least in a good condition that they would want for their collection. Um That is a desired piece. The M90, M95, if you're able to find a great Borgel case um, with a great dial, those are extremely desirable. Um, Again, there's so many. Those are more accessible just because they've had a longer run of producing M90s, M95s. They had 30 years, essentially in producing this movement uh, and configuration. So you can find a slew of them on like Chrono24, eBay, even on Instagram, you can find several people trying to sell their pieces. Um, You have to be a little bit careful with them because there is a lack of information and with that lack of information, people don't necessarily know what they should be looking at. You're assuming that this dial was the original dial and or it looks like this originally when it may have not. Um, Rich Forden of Hodenki, actually great, um, wrote a great article for rescapement a few years back about the different generations of M90s and M95s. Um, essentially, there's three different generations of them, and they all have their own aesthetic. Um, you know, some of them have the actual Movado Chevron logo. Some of them just have different tracks around the um, around the case. Um, but those would be also the more desirable Movados as well under the Dietrichheim family. Um people are interested in also retail stamped pieces. So, like it's not uncommon to see a Tiffany and Co. signed Movado, a Cartier signed Movado. I've had one in the past. Um, several retailers. Um, Movado was not shy in letting other people just throw their name on their pieces. And I think it says a lot about how confident they were that they were just allow a jeweler to just throw their name on their dial. Um with the zenith movados, I would say that the more desirable pieces are the El Primero movados. Um, so, like the Astronic, if you were to find that in steel, uh, yellow gold is the rarer one. I believe that only a hundred of those were actually made. Um, that would be the rarer of the movados, and then after that, there really isn't any rare movado that you can't find at least not under the current family.
1: Okay.
0: I can, can see along
1: searching for all these references. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like making notes on Word right now. Um can we just go back for a second cuz I'm still kind of confused like I understand you're American so you have an attachment to the brand but there are a lot of other American brands that have very like long histories like Belova, Hamilton but movado doesn't seem to have strong history so i'm like failing to understand why you like the brand
2: so i wouldn't say that movado has a strong american um tie at least not the original brand i myself again i i'm a new yorker so movado has a bigger presence here in new york than i guess elsewhere throughout the country um I was born in the late 80s, but really I identify as a 90s kid. And Movado is really just a staple of 90s New York fashion. Um, You know, the way people wear New York Yankee hats, Timberland boots. Mm -hmm. You know, Movado was just one of those brands that identify as being a New York brand because of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Rappers would rap about Movado and everything. So I was just very cognizant of the brand. And I think... I mean, you guys know when you're looking up all these brands, especially as a new enthusiast, you struggle even just saying the names. So just finding a brand where you can at least pronounce (laughs) the name (laughs) goes a long (laughs) way. Goes a long way.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Um, I'd like to know, because you've got, is your collection exclusively Movado?
2: Currently, yes. Currently, yes.
1: Okay. And... Is there a reason why you've decided to collect like that? Like, are you really just looking with other watches? Are there no other watches from other brands like yeah.
2: Um, as of right now, I really do not look at any other brands. I do not care to look at them. I know to a degree what they're doing, like bigger pieces and whatnot, the ones that have more notoriety. But I have no interest in collecting them, at least at this point of my watch collecting. um. I identify as a collector, so I'm just, as opposed to an enthusiast, which I believe would allow someone to just go from brand to brand and just pick whatever they they their heart desires. Me as a collector, I'm just trying to, what satisfies me um, is really just trying to find great examples of Movado itself. Um, I don't envision myself doing this for years on end, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. You know eventually i might want to pursue a different brand but for right now there's just Movado itself is such an unbeaten path and trying to explore it so i find quite i'm quite satisfied just learning new things digging up things that people really have not done so before you are a trailblazer if you're taking a brand like Movado, doing a deep dive and getting information information to present to the world um there really isn't many people doing it i mean You guys see it on Instagram. How many Rolex pages can you find? Um, There really isn't many Movado pages where people are pushing out new information about what was done in the past.
1: Okay, so what do you have in your collection? Because I know there's some pieces that you haven't even, like, uh, one of the things you said to me is, uh, one of the first questions you said, you said, like, do you wear your Movado? It's like, yeah. And then you were like, there's pieces that I don't, I can't even put on my wrist. So yeah, tell us about your collection. What you, what do you have in there?
2: I have my collection or a few pieces that I pulled out that I'll show you guys. My collection currently is a lot of 50s, early 60 models. Um, these models were bumper movements or just I'm infatuated with the case design themselves. Um, when I said wear pieces, um, I've been very fortunate that as I've been looking into pieces, I've come across new old stock pieces and they are ready to wear but my heart just does not allow me to wear these pieces just because there really isn't many out there if i was to ding this up i'm I'm completely fucked i wouldn't know what to do um my heart would fall right out of my ass if i saw like my (laughs) crown just missing and everything so i i'm i'm thankful that i'm able to enjoy these pieces just staring at them um Mm
1: -hmm. i mean if you
2: were to ask my wife she would often come home from work just watching me Staring at my watches, not even putting them on or anything. Um oh, God. I have a few pieces right here. Yeah, so sir, this please,
1: yeah, go through them. Yeah, that'd be great.
2: This is a Movado 431. This is a pre-Kingmatic, so this has only existed for about four years, and then eventually they started mm-hmm. calling all their rotary movements Kingmatics. Um mm-hmm. the 431s were really really nice um a lot of them more housed in Borgel cases this is a francois Borgel case that you're staring at mm-hmm. i don't know if the crown is coming off in the video but the crown is extraordinary i mean the watch itself is so clean it's very very special but the crown itself is very very killer it's a sunken crown um it has the movado pocket watch logo on the crown which is really really cool I do have macro shots of it on my Instagram page if you're curious to know what it actually looks like. Then this one isn't necessarily rare. You might often see this on Instagram. This is another 331. Oh, this yeah, is yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I see that yeah. one. That one looks nice, yeah.
2: It's really, really cool. If you're able to find one in good condition, it's um, so worth it. It com- All of it, it's an 18... 18- carat gold. Uh, I have the yellow gold variation. Hobnail um, dial, so you can see it raised a little bit. It doesn't look good in video, but in person it's just top notch. And then when you're looking at your watch, like during the sunset and everything, and you get to see the sky play with your dial, it's just extraordinarily beautiful. Here, I have a jumbo piece. This is my favorite piece here. This is another 331 bumper movement. What I love about this particular piece is just, again, the case shape. It's rather large for its time. Um, I would, I time this early 50s, um, mm-hmm. but for case shape or case size, it's really um, unusual for its time. Most pieces were really teetering around 35 millimeter max. This is around 36 and a half, which doesn't sound like it's a big difference, but it's accentuated more by the narrower lugs. Uh, These lugs are 16 millimeters apart, so it makes the case size look a lot more bigger than um, the other watches of its time.
0: I see that on your page. Um, You have definitely changed the straps, right? So what would the original straps like?
2: Um, So on the... The Borges case one that I showed, it was really these non, I mean, I would not desire or wear it with that strap. It was just this really crunchy, all black, uh, not exotic leather strap. Um, mm-hmm. Did not, I still have the strap, but it just didn't age well and wasn't ready to be worn. Um, it probably would have fallen off my wrist had I tried to put <laughs> it on, yeah. but they just came. A lot of them came with just these um, very boring black straps. Um mm-hmm. And I just opted to have exotic leather on my watches. Mm. <laughs> okay. Is there
1: a, a, any more in your collection that you would like to show us?
2: I have this saucer UFO-like. Now, this was just a regular manual movement. It has the rose gold indices and hands, um, stepped case, sunken crown. This is quite lovely as well. This I've never worn as well. I mean, <laughs> I should t- <laughs> I should talk about some of the pieces that I haven't worn. I haven't worn my jumbo. I haven't worn the Borgel case. I haven't worn that one. Um, here's another. This one I have worn. This is another bumper 331.
1: So why'd you like this, this bumper th-
2: 331? So I, in general, I love the bumper movements. It's a different feeling. Uh, if you ever had a bumper automatic movement, you've actually when you're moving your wrist, you can feel the ting, you can feel the weight just hitting your case, and it's it's quite pleasant to actually feel it. You, you know, you want to, I mean, like any other automatic watch, you like feeling that it's alive. You sometimes like hearing it tick when it's really really quiet in the room. These is the same thing. I just like feel the feeling of it. Um, they're extraordinarily flat. They were advertised as the thinnest movements during its time. So they sit rather well on the wrist. They're not bulky whatsoever. Um, So they're quite comfortable to wear as everyday dress watches. Um, But yeah, I just I really just enjoy the bumper movements just because it's a little bit. It's more special compared to the rotary movements that you're seeing dominate the market today.
1: Mm, Okay, so how does that bumper movement work?
2: It's just an oscillating weight, as opposed to a rotary movement, where the rotor can potentially go a full um, circle around the watch. The bumper is just perpetually hitting um, one wall and then swinging around to hit another wall that's within the movement. So you'll hear it ting and everything. I, I'm gonna see if I can shake it so you can hear it ting. I don't know if it you can hear it, but
0: yeah, you can. No, you can. I can't. Wait, can just yeah, it just sounds like a fork hitting.
1: yeah Yeah. can you hear it
0: not anymore but just now the first (laughs) time he did it it sounded like a fork hitting the side of um something metal
1: okay i can see this um this jump hour on your page that looks pretty cool man
2: uh i lost a bit on that that sucked how much is that when you you
1: say you lost a bit on it
2: oh yeah i mean i was I was um, I think that particular piece was on eBay and I was bidding on it. And foolishly, I thought like, oh, nobody else is looking at this thing with (laughs) 10 minutes left. I'm going to sink this hook, line and sinker. And then the thing jumps up like five grand within like 10 minutes. And I'm like, oh, wow, that that escalated quickly.
1: All right. Yeah. Okay.
2: the jump Uh hours are especially rare. Simple movements. But those are rare pieces to come by that are Movado signed. So if you ever follow a page on Instagram, uh, Jump Hour King, he is absolutely killer with jump hour movements. He has a few Movado jump hours, his are quite special.
1: Okay. And how much are they going for?
2: (laughs) I mean, you are the market when you have these pieces. I believe the last one that I'm aware of went for like 7K USD.
1: Okay still 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 affordable i mean like i i get propositioned, um yeah like all the time for my pieces yeah but i never ever like put a price because i'm not even thinking about it so i never really i never say well
2: like for your piece the the black dial calendar piece that you have you are the market so whatever piece you know price you set out for you know that is the price for it that's going to be it that's going to be it um don't let anybody try to lowball you. That's a special piece in, in itself. Um, but yeah, a lot of these pieces, they're so rare that you are just, you are the one creating the price for them. So like those jump hours, despite that this gentleman paid a good amount, that design of the jump hour, it's not exclusive to Movado. There's several other brands like Mito, um, I mean, a slew of others that have that same case design. So unless you specifically wanted a Movado signed jump hour piece you know it's maybe not worth investing that much
1: oh okay I mean yeah I mean I always I always do this man I get I talk to somebody that's passionate about a certain brand like uh Movado and it actually did happen with the Seiko uh conversation because I was like straight looking for the imperial VFA uh, <laughs> like but yeah it's kind of died off now but
0: <laughs> so, you know like Dan's black dial piece and it has mm-hmm. the the date in chinese yeah mm-hmm. how did that come about like did movado was it a piece unique how did they come up with the decision to make a chinese one
2: so they have different pieces in different languages i won't mm. that his piece is rare that it's the only chinese calendar piece that i've seen but if you were to accept the presupposition of the movado history book it's It wouldn't be shocking to know that there's calendar pieces in Chinese um, at their height of their company, which was the late 40s. They had Mm. headquarters in Hong Kong, um, Mm. somewhere in South America, North America, Europe. Um, So they did have headquarters throughout the world. So I'm assuming that that's probably out of the uh, it's a piece specific to the Hong Kong market. Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, So like people that know Chinese, right? like they'll be feeling familiar with like um the Baisan or mm. like baisam right so mm. you know the san, right
0: mm.
1: um it's some it's the way you say like monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday and saturday sunday
0: mm-hmm. mostly
1: in the southern part of china you don't say that in like you know put mostly mandarin you don't you wouldn't write it so certainly on the dial but that's what it is on the dial. So mm. I believe it is like from around when you're talking about the Hong Kong time. Mm. But um, yeah, I love that piece, man.
2: It's <laughs> such a rare piece. That's a beautiful, beautiful piece.
1: Yeah, yeah. It looks so Don't good. Sell it. Don't sell it.
2: today. Like if I, if I wore if
1: I'm wearing a suede jacket today, if I just wear that out, like go you know that smoky vibe and just go to a bar, I think I could pick up any chick, man. <laughs> just gives me
2: high.
1: <laughs> right um okay is that is that all the questions exhausted uh, oh yeah here's one any particularly special moments in your movado collecting
2: journey two comes to mind um the latter was probably my favorite um I'm a newlywed. I just got married. I
0: saw the photo of your fiance. It was like...
2: Thank you. She she is wearing in that same piece. If you were to look on the Instagram page, a, yeah. a simple museum piece, but it's a little bit special in that it's a Movado factory museum piece that has a date window. So when I proposed to her, I also before I gave her the ring, I actually gave her that watch with the date and everything. So oh that her piece. I find more special than any other of the pieces in my collection. I actually have her piece here. Very simple. And then the date window is here on the actual yeah. dot itself. So that's one of the more special pieces. Another piece was the jumbo that I showed earlier, where that was probably the first piece where I really invested a lot of money into watch collecting. I mean, one of the things I didn't want to do was just overextend myself with, I mean... Who really needs all these watches, right? And in, to invest so much. So I, at the time, was avoiding trying to invest so much. But when I saw that piece, I was like, "Fuck, man! I really wanted to have it." <laughs> and I was, I was bothering. Uh... I, was, I was bothering the seller for a few months, and he was just unrelenting. And he himself, he didn't really wanted to sell it either. But finally, I kind of he begrudgingly was like, "You know what? I I kind of sense that you would be into it. Let me." He set a price that I think he didn't think that I would agree to. Mm-hmm. And when he did, he I think he just was like, fuck, now I actually have to sell this piece. <laughs> so I got it within a few days and it was just, it was wonderful. I was, my jaw just hit the floor and I got mm-hmm. to meet him later on. So when I bought that piece, I maintained uh, contact with him. And we went to, on our honeymoon, me and my wife, we went to Italy and, mm-hmm. uh, we got to meet my friend, the dealer in Switzerland, shortly after have dinner with them, and it was quite a lovely experience.
0: That's so cool.
1: Yeah, that's very nice. I, I love, yeah. I love it when like people put in all logical, like stops to not spend yeah. money, and then yeah. when they say, like it, it just go, just goes out the window. You know, mm-hmm. it reminds me of like um, when Mike Tyson says, "Yeah, everybody's got like, is it ideas or something?" Until you get punched yeah. in the face. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, you just, oh, fuck it, you're just the watch,
2: right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's some as I'm realizing as a collector, I mean, the great thing about Movado and me collecting is that I definitely feel like I'm growing as a collector where I'm, at first, you're really just hoarding and then mm-hmm. you have an abundant amount of pieces and you realize, you know, what, I really do not care about maybe 75% of these pieces. I need to just start figuring out what's important to me. Um, curate to meet what I'd want, curate to think about what I want to get in the future. Um, mm-hmm. I am not going to collect every Movado, and I am trying to limit myself to just ten great examples of certain pieces. It's a lot harder than it sounds, mm-hmm. but um, that's my ultimate goal, is to just have ten great examples. Um, I sent a few pictures to Dan of like what I'm interested in, so like after I'm trying not to buy any more of this for a whole year. I, I said that as a goal last year. It didn't work, but I'm trying <laughs> this year to not buy any pieces. Um, but eventually I'm going to start looking into vintage Movado pocket watches. Um, there's a lot of nice ones out there.
1: Okay. Well, that was a, a fantastic um, interview with you, Lewis. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Thoroughly, you know, it's fantastic. And we now go on to, as you know, the reverse round. So shoot us your questions.
2: I actually wrote down several questions that I'm not going to bother you all with. So I'm just going <laughs> to pick which ones that I think would be interesting. Um, Let's see. Wow. All right, so Dan, let me ask you this question. Uh, so this is, I guess, a watch-related question. Uh, not all my questions are watch-related, but this question, how do you see your collection changing in the next five years?
1: Mm. Um. Well, I think people that have been listening to the podcast will know that right now, I'm in the what I think is a clear direction, enough to act. So there's a long period where I wasn't really acting on it, but... I know the pieces i'd like and i don't know if i'll get them in the five years i mean some of them are really expensive but um you know they would consist of the paddock 5110 the um rolex vintage rolex 6265 i'd love to um add maybe a few reversos um so yeah it's it's kind of clear in the pieces i like i i don't collect exclusively one brand like you so for me the watches are always accessories to what i wear and how i want to portray myself and essentially i dress relatively smart and i'm in suits a lot of the time so it's definitely based towards um dress watch the reason why i like the rolex and maybe the omega ck 2915 is that they're at a period where the watch is still small right so I feel like I would like a tool watch just because the vibe a tool watch gives you know when you wear it on a bracelet um but it's still dressy enough for to to fit into my attire um I I like to which is contrary to you I like to wear my watches (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it was Um, like day
0: i wanted to say that like when he was explaining how he doesn't wear it i was like dying inside because i just need to understand like how can people not wear it like you have it just sitting there and then you just walk past it and you just
1: i don't think it's out of like desire i think it's like it's like out of fear
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh it's mine is more so fear if i could wear this without worrying that i'm gonna ding it I, i totally would just strap it on but me my lifestyle i'm in and out of doorways i'm fumbling around in my car and the last thing i want to see is a scuff mark on my mm. watch i'm like fuck
0: Mm-mm.
1: so yeah it's going to be mostly that kind of vibe which i, I like, i've always loved like iconic classic pieces um that's me and i will probably also i thought i find i think this may be because of my work at phillips i'll stay with the big brands so paddock mm. yeah
2: okay um Mm -hmm. is is there any asian luxury brand that you're a fan of that you buy a lot of oh
0: good question
2: it doesn't have to be watches it could be any luxury brand that you can think of
0: well the only one that i do buy that's asian would be I don't even know if they're fully Asian-owned though. Cause is Shanghai Tang fully Asian-owned? You know what's funny? So I'm glad that you asked this question, anyways, because I actually being Chinese, I never actually was that a like I grew up in an international school. I didn't even have any Asian friends until I was like 18. And I'll go back to Taipei once a year to see my cousins. And a lot of my cousins grew up in international school. Everything I watched was MTV, Oprah, Baywatch, Simpsons. <laughs> like, I was very, like, I would say American, you know? So I the, even the very Chinese stuff I bought, I feel like it's super Westernized. So the only thing I could think of would be, like, some clothing. But even then, I don't feel strong attachment to Chinese stuff. But I'm slowly, like, understanding... I mean, this is a very recent thing because I just came back from Taipei recently and I can truly see now that I've missed out on a lot of like Chinese culture that I should probably understand better. And a lot of the rituals in terms of like uh, my family's, like everyone's a Buddhist and I say I'm a Buddhist, but I don't actually carry out any of the things that they do and I don't pray religiously. So then this trip round, I've kind of like realized I probably need to like, you know explore more of this
2: yeah
1: well can i just ask like why do you feel like after this trip like does something resonate with you
0: yeah because you know if you i mean you know this if you live in hong kong long enough your life is just moving at a super fast pace it's like filled from morning till night you don't actually have any time to think i mean even during our downtime we're doing this podcast right (laughs) we're like i'm playing tennis or doing something um so going back always puts my life into perspective in terms of like there are a lot more important things in my life and then so seeing my grandparents and also being like okay you should have more faith and have more like focus on religion and other things Mm -hmm. other than just being productive which is like my biggest problem constantly Mm -hmm. worrying about how I'm using my time Mm
1: -hmm. yeah (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs)
2: What All is right.
0: your perception of Asian luxury, though? Uh, OK, this is the OK, so Dan, you can help me answer this, but this is my uh, I think in terms of Asian luxury. So minus Japan that have perfected a lot of things, like even up to chopsticks and like uh, tableware and whatever. Um, if you go to China, I always say hardware is there. So hardware as in you see the buildings that are like, whoa, it's nicer than most countries software which is like the people I still feel like they need like 10 years it just doesn't match up but then people are so eager to learn so they can adopt things very quickly so they can study magazines and they can study how to dress but then do they really understand how to put an outfit together they're not there yet but they know how to play the part because they're trying really hard but hardware is available everything is there so that's how I would explain. Oh, so in terms of like dining, um, fashion, like so products and everything, they can build things really quickly, like the BRD cars, right? But software, so service and um, the technology in the car, it's still a little bit behind in terms of like the US anyways, in my opinion.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. I think um, that you see... When you talk about luxury marketing and branding of brands, right, let's say just on the Swiss watch industry, it's all European. You talk about the fashion it's all European. And so you've got if you add that up cumulatively, that is an incredible amount of marketing, not just marketing Louis Vuitton, marketing Europe as being the place to go for luxury.
0: Mm.
1: I don't think that you know, in people's minds, when they think luxury, not just Chinese, but most people in in the world, they think China as luxury. But there are things that Chinese do value in luxury, such as, like, you know, super rare jade, super rare, like, redwood, you know, Mm -hmm. that things that perhaps don't resonate, like, abroad, that um, those things are actually manufactured in China and have, like, everything that all all these luxury brands has like a really deep history and heritage and craftsmanship, right? Where it comes from inherently within rather than I took something from elsewhere and I made it cheaper. Right. So I don't think brands try to, because it just seems an unwise battle to fight, to like go for extreme luxury if, and to be honest, most brands make more money like by appealing to the masses and selling mm-hmm. quickly so i don't think they feel that there's a need to go for luxury but certainly chinese can appreciate luxury when it's something that they understand like mm-hmm. uh jade and redwood
0: mm-hmm.
1: right okay
2: do you, oh We're you feel somewhere. like you've another question I mean, I have a whole Bible full of questions here. I don't know how long we want to drag out the reverse around.
1: All right. Um, we'll give you one more.
2: Okay. Would you rather this question is for both of you. Would you rather know why or how?
1: God, that's deep.
0: <laughs> Man, he really fucked us over here. <laughs> like he definitely <laughs> listens to the podcast. I definitely want to know why. Because I'm definitely someone that just needs to under the, understand the psychology behind anything. And I've always said this to Dan. If you kill someone, I'll have your back. But I need to understand your motive. And <laughs> as long as you come to me and you tell me the truth, I'll cover your ass. But I need to understand why. So I don't care about the how something happened as much as someone's the mental state and what they were thinking. Hmm
1: yeah why or how okay without the it's a deep question that i would say requires deep thought which i'm not giving right now to the question but i my initial sway would be onto how just because i'm naturally very inquisitive on curious on um lots of things so so one part of my job right is obviously like i see clients right and and you know they most of the time they they're in an industry that they know very really really well and they talk to me about it and i find it the most interesting thing ever you know they could be like doing something that on paper looks really boring but once they go into the how uh like i think they, they've got me you know so i'm then, just okay actually, dan you know, taking- what if
0: i killed someone and then you, no. and I was like, Dan, I killed someone. Would you yeah. be like, how? Or would you be like, why? Well,
1: actually, maybe <laughs> how? I'd be like, how did how? you do it? How did okay. you do it? Okay. Like, nice was he there. like, well,
0: how did you do
1: it? Like, mm-hmm. I, but that, my first initial thought would be, you're fucked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then I'd be like, yeah. Okay. But then if you told me what if you told me who, I'd be like, oh, I know why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Then. So okay, good fun. Let's go to the pump push around. Number one. One thing off your bucket list.
2: I would like to travel to an Asian country. I've never been to I mean, there's so many countries in the Eastern world I have not experienced. Um and I have family who's in the military that's gone all over and they've just shared pictures so i do want to go to japan i do want to go to hong kong i do want to i just want to experience outside of the western world
0: that's cool
1: why does shanghai always get left out
0: because it's not <laughs> exciting <laughs> hong kong yeah, is like, you. you know? that
1: just got, like is addicted to like escape rooms man it's yeah like- i
0: know but it's like You know, Hong Kong's like old and new, you know?
1: Right. Number two, the most rewarding part of your job.
2: The most rewarding part of my job is that I tangibly can see a difference being made. You know, it's not wishful thinking like everyone wants to. I mean, everyone hopes that their job has meaning and it somehow uh, translates, but I can Mm -hmm actually see uh, firsthand um, that what I did made a difference in these people's lives. The people that I support they're an at-risk population, um, the developmentally disabled, they're individuals that are diagnosed with autism, um, a form of intellectual disability, Down syndrome, what have you. There's so many. But um, a, a lot of them find difficult I mean it's difficult for them to live an independent life so to be able to step in and support them in that realm is very satisfying
1: okay next one if you weren't doing your job right now and could pick any job out there what would it be
2: like a dream job what would be my dream Mm -hmm. job yeah yeah I think I want to be a stunt double I think I would want to be a stunt double I would have
0: never guessed that
1: a stunt double okay for any particular actor
2: or actress
0: yeah i mean i don't
2: think i look like anybody (laughs) you could be even
0: diesel if you like shaved off your hair
2: (laughs) well that's true because they they would only need to see like the back of my head as they take a punch to the face right so i could do that why
1: why why would you want to do that like why is
2: that i think i would be really good to take like a punch in the face or like fall down the stairwells i don't know why i think i'd be really good at (laughs) it doing that without like getting myself too hurt (laughs) let's have that over again
1: right next one new york best food
2: pizza pizza which one then so with pizza you have to be very i mean i'm very particular i would say even some of the best pizza is not necessarily in the city the place that i go to is Someone close to me on Long Island is called uh, Villa Montes. They have like, I think, 60 different toppings that you could put on a pizza. So I often opt for the bacon sliced pizza, bacon bits oh, on a pizza. Oh, that,
1: that was such a stupid question to ask when someone. I know. Asked... <laughs> right. I, I like to ask, right? Like, how often do you have pizza
2: if it's that good? weekly at least i weekly have pizza wow wow, wow! wow. i
0: feel like i'm not you know, living like listening to <laughs>
2: <him>. <laughs> i don't realize how spoiled i am until like one of the things i do do when i do yeah. travel is i do try the local food and i will try pizza regardless wherever so I, when i me and my wife we just went to italy And I did get a chance to try pizza in Italy. And it still Mm. didn't, like, to my palate, didn't, you know, was not up to snuff. I think I might just be too snobby when it comes to pizza. Um, In the States, you often have, like, a rivalry between New York pizza and Chicago pizza. Chicago pizza is terrible. Feels like you're eating the rim of a car. (laughs) It's (laughs) god-awful. Um they call it their deep dish pizza. It's just this is just nonsense. Don't even waste your time with Chicago pizza.
1: <laughs> right. Can I ask like are there any <laughs> tips and tricks that you can do to salvage a pizza that's been left overnight?
0: Wait. Like you mean ways to heat it up? Well, not
1: just heat it up, make
0: it yeah. taste as well. I know people who like cold pizza
2: i would opt to eating it yeah. cold as opposed to trying to heat it up because it's what <laughs> like how old of a pizza are we talking about i mean anything yeah. more than oh, a day, over, probably...
1: like you just like bought one and i mean man if it's over two days i'm not touching that but i mean like if it's just you had it the night before yeah the night before you wake up and you see
2: it Ugh. that's not a way to eat that's terrible I would going so uh, straight into the bin. It okay, in- go straight so, to the bin. If, if it's not if I don't eat it that same day, it's going straight to the bin. It's going straight to the garbage. I don't eat leftovers. I'm very snobby in that way. Like it's <laughs> just a different it's a different taste and complete like I know people who will tell you like lasagna tastes different, you know, mm-hmm. even a day older and it tastes better, but for me, I'd rather have things fresh when it's made or heated up and if not, it's going straight into the garbage.
0: You're okay. making me rethink how I live my life right now. <laughs> Hang on,
1: do you do you finish everything long?
0: Yeah, I do, cause I okay, hate wasting food. Yeah. So I was gonna tell you, you can even put it into the sandwich grill. Like you can actually like <laughs> press it down. It just looks like weird. a panini press. Yeah, like a- but it melts never- the cheese. Yeah. That's
2: interesting. Right.
1: The next one. Your
2: strongest pickup line. Strongest pickup line. I mean, gosh, it's been so long. <laughs>
1: How did you pick up your wife? Okay, your strongest I'm... rusty pickup line.
2: Oh, so I think I know the pick I remember the pickup line that I say with my wife. I'm really cheesy. I don't even try to be smooth or anything. That's not <laughs> that's not me. So I think I just yeah. went up to my wife and How said your uh pizza you pick- eat. i think i might have asked her hey you like music i like music too and that's it she probably just thought i was an idiot and uh was more you know more curious than anything to find out more about me
1: (laughs) okay number seven your biggest watch celebrity
2: crush watch celebrity crush just a celebrity in the community or is it an actual celebrity
1: industry community
2: you know Aside from myself, <laughs> <laughs> I would say it would be you. No, you're, you'd you be it, I suppose. You got two okay. of the Movados that I like the most. Again, like I, I really don't follow other brands. So it's all like poppycock to me to just see like people bang on about the Patek and everything. I'll say the person who's been most helpful to me has been Rony. Mm-hmm. Rony's, he indulges all my naive questions and, you know. I don't know if you pay attention to his story. Sometimes he like puts people on blast when they say something stupid it. to him DM. I love oh, it.
0: I'm,
2: I'm just hoping it's never me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping it's never me. But he's been incredibly, you know, patient and thankful. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful that he answers my questions as naive as they are. He gives me that time of day, um mm-hmm. so I'm very appreciative of him. So I'll say ronnie
1: mm-hmm. Okay, next one and an IG page that you follow that isn't watches that you really enjoy?
2: Oh, that I enjoy? Uh, um, No Context Ric Flair. (laughs) What is that? So do you know, uh, Ric Flair is a professional wrestler and is basically an an account page that um, will just take a lot of his wrestling promos out of context. It'll have like a you know benign little caption and it's rick flair just going off on his promo and it's off it's pretty funny it's funny to me
1: okay right next one one thing that most people don't know about you
2: um i'm really not a man of mystery um i'm trying to think what people wouldn't know about me i think my watch passion people don't know too much about Uh, Even, like, I mean, that Movado Archive Instagram page that I have, that's my private, well, it's not my private personal page. I don't really intermingle the two that I have, my private account and my watch page. So I think when people in my real world are finding out, like, hey, what is it that you're doing? You're going to the Horological (laughs) Society of New York for what? What is this that you're doing? It's... (laughs) It's, they're a bit taken aback by it they go oh i never knew so like i i often tell people at work like oh uh no i'm taking time off to have this interview they're like well, what are you doing th- interview on what and i'm like oh my watch card. <laughs> so to so explain funny. to my co-workers why i'm yeah. taking off today to to do this it's eye eye opening for them That's right so funny.
1: um next one one thing that you loved about your childhood
2: I love how there was no phones involved in my childhood. Like I did not grow up with, I mean, I'm 34. So when I basically got out of high school, the iPhone one just became available. So I grew Mm -hmm. up in an era where you really had to, you called someone's house. If they didn't pick up, you just either assume that they'll know that you attempted (laughs) to call them or they're dead or whatever. You just had to live life. You never kind of just stayed sitting on your hands. You kind of just always was around, out and about trying to explore the world. You're not on a mobile Mm -hmm. device that had internet. Like mind you, the internet really didn't become accessible to me till I had a cell phone. Like I did have Mm -hmm. a desktop, but I didn't sit on my desktop all day. Um, Mm -hmm. So before I was, I think I was just more social in my childhood, just going out and being a neighborhood kid.
1: Okay. Well, that was the last question. The last pump, push around question. So it's the end of the interview. Thank you very much for Thank agreeing you. to do this. I had a really mm. great time and uh, look forward to checking out your page. Um, for those that um, would like to know more, they can reach you at where, Lewis?
2: My Instagram handle is Mavado underscore archive.
1: Yep, And I think if you've listened to this podcast, I think uh, Lewis is very approachable and a fountain of knowledge on Movado. So we'll see you on the next one. Thanks again, Lewis. Thanks again, Long Long. Good night. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any
2: questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts.
1: We'll see you on the next one. Bye.
2: Bye.